Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Paula Sargero Show. We are back again with a full show on top for you today. Uh, uh, hope everyone's having a wonderful weekend thus far. 35 degrees here in Attleboro, Massachusetts. Uh, just to let everyone know, we will be, um, this program is going to go until 4 o'clock uh, today. Uh, typically, we go until 5, as many of you know, but we have Attleboro High School playing Bishop Fian High School at 4 o'clock, and that will be broadcast um over the ear as well as uh, online on our website. Uh, today we have a special guest. We will be talking with um, senior researcher uh, Nazgul Granush from the Sentencing Project to discuss kind of mass incarceration, what the Sentencing Project is, uh, some of the projects they're working on, and uh, kind of just like criminal justice reform in general. So without further ado, I uh, just want to get right into the interview since we will be here uh, until 4. Uh, Nazgul, can you hear us? Hello? Hi there. Oh, wonderful. So um, just to begin for some of our listeners, if you could just give us um, a brief uh, bio and kind of um, what you currently do for the Sentencing Project. Sure. So I have been at the Sentencing Project for six years now, and um, I do research there. And I focus on topics like looking at trends in incarceration, um, and luckily in recent years that's been looking at um, the number of people in prison starting to come down around the country, and so I like to highlight where which states have made the most progress. I also look at um, racial disparities in incarceration and, look, and try to synthesize and um, help people get access to research about what causes racial disparities and document uh, what states have ma been making the, uh, the most progress and what jurisdictions have been making progress in reducing racial disparities and incarceration. And then the final area that I've been focused on has been on very long sentences and documenting um, some of the trends in, for people that are serving life with a possibility of parole, for example. Um, so those are some of the main areas that I focused on, and a big part of my work is doing some of my own research, summarizing the research that others, especially in academia, are doing to make that more accessible to the, the public. And then I do a lot of public education, like talks and interviews like this one, um, in order to bridge the gap between what the public thinks uh, and, you know, our intuitions about uh, criminal justice policies and what the research actually shows on these issues. Wonderful. Yeah, you know, um, so when I was finishing my master's degree in criminal justice, I looked at a lot of uh, the school-to-prison pipeline and then kind of uh, mental health in the, our correctional system. So I've always wanted to try and do a segment on uh, kind of mass incarceration, the research that Sentencing Project does. Um, you know, we've done segments on here before. Some of our listeners may have heard it. Uh, we interviewed a filmmaker who kind of did a documentary on uh, life after life following uh, those that were incarcerated or facing uh, life in prison that were released along with uh, we've had lawyers and kind of different mental health advocates. So, again, I would just like to say thank you for the work you currently do and uh, taking the time out of your day to uh, educate our community a little bit on what the Sentencing Project is doing. Sure thing. My pleasure. And I should just also add that, um, just for background, before I joined the Sentencing Project, my, I was doing a Ph.D. in sociology 
at UCLA. And my focus for my dissertation was uh, on people in prison, family, individuals, and the family members that were supporting them outside of prison. And I was looking at people serving life with the possibility of parole in, um, in the California area and, and documenting some of the efforts that incarcerated people and their loved ones undergo in order to secure their release from prison. Because we know at this point a lot about the problems of incarceration, and I'm happy to talk about some of that and some of the um, the causes and the consequences of why we have so many people in prison. Um, but increasingly in recent years, we have a lot more people that are directly impacted taking an active role in um, trying to reduce incarceration levels and tackle disparities and improve conditions of incarceration. Um, and so it was very exciting for me to be able to um, to be to to see that in action and documented and um, and then now I can have you know work closely with some people like that um, and to, to support some of the work that they're doing um, to bring about reforms in the criminal justice system. Absolutely, and and for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with the sentencing project, could you tell us a little bit about uh, what the organization is and uh, and what their mission is as well? Sure. So the Sentencing Project is an organization based in Washington, D.C. We uh, have a pretty small staff of about 10 people, and we're engaged in research and advocacy to support, uh, to create a more fair and effective criminal justice system. So we work on these issues around the country as well as at the federal level. And when I say fair and effective, what I mean by that generally, the fair part is trying to tackle racial disparities, um, to try to make it so that, you know, people of African-Americans and Latinos make up about a third of the population, but they make up about two-thirds of the incarcerated population. Um, so the goal is to reduce some of those very high levels of incarceration for African-Americans and Latinos, but as well as for whites. Um, and then the more effective, to produce a more effective criminal justice system, what that means there is to recognize that we're well past the point of, um, incarcerating the people that we need to incarcerate. We incarcerate a lot more people that don't need to be in prison. So we, part of that is because we keep people in prison for way too long. And so the goal is to scale back levels of incarceration so that we could invest more effectively in public safety. Absolutely. Um, now, uh, uh, just for a little bit of, uh, how long has the, uh, the sentencing project been um, established for? When did it first, uh, when was it first founded? Sentencing Project has been around for over 30 years now. All right, wonderful. Um, so I wanted uh, kind of our discussion where we're going to talk about uh, mass incarceration. Then obviously um, I have some facts that I wanted to make sure we uh, mentioned throughout the course of the interview. Um, could you tell us a little bit about, because we've heard it throughout the media and the news about mass incarceration. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what exactly is mass incarceration and exactly what does that entail? Sure. So here's what I think um, the numbers that I think best capture uh, what we mean when we're talking about mass incarceration is if we just look at the number of people in prison. So if you look at the number of people in prison, there is about one and a half people that are in prison in the United States. Most people are in state prisons. Some of them are in federal prisons. Um, and so that 1.5 million excludes the people that are in jails, in county jails around the country. So that's another 700,000, and that gets you to, some people might be familiar with 
the figure 2.2 million. The United States incarcerates 2.2 million people. That's in jail and prison combined. But if you just look at the prison population, it's one and a half million people in prison. Um, but if you go back to what we generally would consider sort of the first year of mass incarceration of when the prison population started to dramatically increase in the United States, that would be in 1973. That was the first year of increase. And in that year, there were 200,000 people in prison in the United States. So we've increased from 200,000 people to 1.5 million. And I think that kind of sums things up, because before that point, before the 1970s, you know, we generally stayed at a pretty consistent rate of incarceration. It was still higher than other, um, our peer countries in Europe and Canada, but not at the scale at which we see now, which is, you know, like by the order of magnitude of like five to ten times as high in terms of the rate of incarceration. So that is mass incarceration. And then um, and another, I think, critical aspect of it to understand is that it disproportionately affects people of color in the United States, um, which is not, you know, but there's also, I think, important to recognize that um, even white Americans are incarcerated at an extremely high rate. So Marie Gottschalk, who's a professor of um, political science at University of Pennsylvania, has said that even if we don't incarcerate any African Americans or Latinos in the United States, we would still have a mass incarceration problem. If we only incarcerated whites, we would have way more people in prison as a proportion of our population compared to um, Western European countries, for example. That's incredible. Uh, folks, we are in studio with uh, Senior Research analysis, uh, Analyst uh, from the Sentencing Project, Nazgul Grenouche. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, maybe what has what caused this increase in, in mass incarceration and maybe um, kind of the things that the Sentencing Project works on or us as a society can work on to try and uh, decrease these numbers. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We are in studio here until 4 o'clock, and then we will have uh, Attleboro High School football uh, broadcast over the air, as well as uh, WARARadio.com. Uh, they are going against Bishop Fian in the playoffs. Uh, so we will be here until 4 o'clock. Today we are joined uh, by Senior Research Analyst uh, Nazgul Grenouche from the Sentencing Project. And before break, we were discussing a little bit about uh, what exactly is mass incarceration and, um, you know, it, what we want to cover, or at least what I kind of want to talk about uh, going into this next segment is um, what has caused this increase? Because if we look at kind of the incarceration rate, and you, you guys can, uh, if you just typed in mass incarceration uh, facts online, you'll see all these charts with this increase. Uh, Nazgul, could you talk a little bit about, uh, kind of put, put everything in, I guess, into historical context of kind of what incarceration rates had looked like prior to such a huge spike uh, you know, going towards kind of the 70s and 80s. Could you tell, put everything in perspective for some of our listeners? Sure. So before, um, so as I mentioned, in the 1970s, we had about, um, early 1970s, we had about 200,000 people in prison in the United States. And then it began to dramatically increase. And it increased actually for every single year for almost 40 years, the prison population went up. For part of that time, in the first couple decades, the crime rate was going up in the United States. And actually, it's kind of an interesting thing to notice that the crime rate was going up uh, around the world. So if you look at crime rates in Canada and European countries, 
it, and that has to do with many different factors, like a lot more young people in the population, um, economic issues. You know, there are a lot of factors that contribute to trends in crime rates. Um, crime rates went up, and then in, in the 1990s, crime rates have fallen dramatically, and they've done that around the world. So, um, but you know, so right now, for example, homicide rates are half the level that they used to be at when they hit their peak levels in the mid 90s. And it's the same with violent, other violent crimes more generally, property crimes. So many countries shared in this, in this trend of crime rates going up, crime rates coming down. The United States is really exceptional in coming up with this, um, what was imagined to be a solution, but has become a problem of mass incarceration in order to tackle crime. Um, and the way that this happened was that it wasn't just in reaction to crime rates going up that more people started to go to prison or more started more people started to be arrested or prosecuted, but actually there were significant changes in policing practices, significant changes in prosecution, and in our laws as well. And so one part of that is the war on drugs, so a lot more people going into prison for drug crimes than in the past. Um, so that's one part of it, and I and I wanted um, your listeners to really understand that the war on drugs it plays a really important part in the mass incarceration problem that we have. But a lot of times, people actually overestimate how much of an impact it's had. Because right now, if you look at who's in prison in the United States, it's about 19% of the prison population is there for a drug conviction. A lot more people are there for like parole violations because of having drugs on them or in their system or something like that. But but a lot of people are in prison for half the prison population is there for a violent conviction, like a robbery or assault or a more serious violent crime. And so what happened as that got us to this problem of so many people in prison is that the likelihood of going to prison went up significantly for any kind of crime. So whereas in the past, if you committed a burglary, you would have gotten probation, you would have been monitored closely, you may have gotten services to help you economically. But, um, but you know, it's starting in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, you, were, you became much more likely to get a prison sentence when you were caught with a, committing a crime. And then the other factor is that you would get a much longer prison sentence than in the past. So as a result of mandatory minimum sentencing, truth and sentencing laws, crimes that people used to go into prison for for one year, two years, three years, and that's not a trivial amount of time, people ended up going to prison for 5, 10, 15 plus years for those crimes. And just mathematically, when you hold people in prison for a really long time, then that's just going to expand the prison population because it just takes people so long to get out. Absolutely. There was one uh, statistic I found on the Sensing uh, Projects website that I want to mention to our listeners and then kind of ask a question related to it. It says nearly half and the exact number was 46% of people incarcerated in state prisons in 2015 were convicted of nonviolent drug, property, or public order crimes. Uh, the, the, por- the portion of that I, I wanted to uh, focus on, and you, you touched upon it briefly, was uh, kind of the nonviolent drug uh, offenses. Why do you think, because um, this is an important topic that I always used to mention in some of our, uh, my grad courses along with undergrad, is how come as a society we've kind of treated uh, kind of drug offenses as a criminal justice problem instead of maybe a public health one. Why do you think as a society we kind of see that as a criminal justice one? Um, And again, this is kind of just my opinion. I think some of it, unless you're, um, I guess, the trafficker, I could see being treated as a criminal justice one. But if someone's, uh, you know, addicted to drugs, me personally, I I, kind of see that as a public health issue. Yeah, well, I think that 
there's growing understanding that drugs should be treated in that way, not as a criminal problem, but as a public health issue now, especially with the opioid crisis. Um, and part of the reason I think that people are more sensitive to that now and more willing to have um, a compassionate healing approach rather than a punitive one is because of race and class, because people that are impacted by the opioid crisis are disproportionately white, they're disproportionately, they're more likely to be middle class, um, people who live in suburban areas as well as rural areas. And that those communities are able to um, leverage leverage elected officials, leverage, um, pro, you know, people that are in positions of power to come up with better policies for the, uh, the problems that they're facing. Unfortunately, if you look at the earlier um, heroin crisis and if you look at the crack crisis in the 1980s and 90s, um, the response was much more punitive. And I think that had a lot to do with the fact that those were urban drug crises that disproportionately affected um, people of color and and at that time, there, w- there would be people that make the association between drug markets and violent crime, and there certainly was a connection. But it wasn't the case that um, bringing so many people in and out of the criminal justice system for their drug use problems, not effectively treating them while they're incarcerated, um, would have, uh, you know, would be able to effectively um, handle the problems that the drug, illicit drug markets were creating. And, you know, another part of the problem is that people often think, well, if you're selling drugs, that's different than if you're using drugs. Like, we should have a public health approach for drug use, but not for sales. The tricky thing is that, you know, I think intuitively it makes sense. We want to, we want to be tougher for people that are um, selling drugs. But what happens typically is that what criminologists call a replacement effect. If you arrest and incarcerate someone who's selling drugs, there are 10 other people that are ready to fill in their position, generally speaking. And so so you're not actually limiting the availability of drugs. You're not increasing prices. And people who've studied um, the, you know, so the National Research Council has done a report about um, opioids and looked at past drug wars and concluded that previous drug wars have actually not had much of an impact on the availability of drugs, on the price of drugs, to make it harder for people to purchase it, and so on. And so um, so the fact that so many people in our country have been uninsured for so long, um, making it harder for them to get access to mental health care, make it, making it harder for them to get access to drug treatment, those are the kinds of things that we needed to have been funding and filling in gaps for instead of cycling people um, in and out of the criminal justice system for substance use problems. And a lot of people commit crimes that are not drug-related crimes, but that are property crimes because of untreated substance use problem. And so it's that lack of treatment in our communities generally, which is starting to improve, but still has a long way to go. Um, so it's that lack of treatment in communities, but also when once people get incarcerated, we do not seriously provide them with medical treatment, professional treatment for their substance use disorder. So it sort of becomes a waste of time. And actually, in some ways, it's harmful because with respect to opioids, if you incarcerate someone and let them out and they return to their drug use, and a lot of times people will go back to the same level that they were using previously, that makes them at an especially high risk of overdose death. Interesting. There was another statistic I found that uh, uh, on the website. It says uh, between 2010 and 2015, the number of people decreased uh, by 4.5%. 
uh, 9%. I'm assuming that's incarcerated individuals it was referring to. Was there something that changed within those five years? Was it just a cultural change, or is it common to see um, kind of that change between around 5% uh, from maybe uh, what that was, a, f- a five-year difference? Is that common, or was there a big change that happened uh, as, as a society in our country as a whole? Yes, yeah, so I'm glad that you asked that because it's really important for people to realize that in recent years, things have been starting to change in criminal justice policy. So I mentioned like a nearly 40-year period where prison population was going up every single year. Uh, starting in 2009, the prison population started to decline in size. And, and if you actually look from 2009 until 2017, there's been a 7% dec- reduction in the total number of people in prison. And so that's very exciting to see, especially after such a long period of constant increase in prison populations. But it's a really small, pretty modest reduction in the overall, overall size of the people that are incarcerated. Um, but some states have actually made a lot more progress. So, for example, um, states like New York and New Jersey, uh, Connecticut, these are some states that have reduced their prison populations by over 30%. Um, and that's really substantial, and that gets us closer to the level of decarceration that a lot of folks are hoping to see. So, for example, the ACLU and many other organizations now are advocating for cutting the prison population in half. And what we can see is that some states are actually have made a lot of progress to get close to that goal. And in those states, what, what we've noticed is that crime rates have not been harmed by this effort to decarcerate the prison population. So crime rates have been falling around the country, and they've been falling as much, if not more, in states that have made significant cuts in their prison populations. So I think that what's helped, um, you know, but for most states, their level of decarceration is much smaller. So it's, you know, it's in the ballpark of 7% for most states. For I think it's actually... 39 states have reduced their prison populations in recent years since they've reached their peak levels. There's only 11 states where, that have yet to reduce their prison populations. But in most places, it's a pretty modest level of reduction. And the reason that we've been able to see that, and uh, you know, it has to do partly with a lot of work of criminal justice advocates, of impacted people, um, a lot more awareness from the general public that we have gone astray in uh, coming up with effective um, and both like humane and cost-effective solutions to crime problems. Um, but it's also, we, it, I think that there's been a lot more receptivity for these calls for reducing the prison population because crime rates have fallen so much compared to the 1990s. And we, you know, we went through an economic downturn, and that made people more aware about how to use, you know, how to effectively invest public resources and became, they became more sensitized to how incarceration, spending so much money imprisoning people is not the most effective use of public resources. Um, So, and then I think a lot of faith organizations have actually come um, and participated in this dialogue and made a, a strong case for people to realize that people are better than the worst things they've ever done. Everyone is capable of redemption, and we should give people uh, a second chance and and take a closer look at people uh, who have been incarcerated, even for serious crimes, and give them another chance. 
Absolutely. Folks, we are joined by Nazgul Granush, who is a senior research analyst for the Sentencing Project. Uh, we're discussing mass incarceration, the Sentencing Project. We're going to take a quick break, and when we get back, I'd like to talk a little bit more about kind of the racial disparities of uh, kind of our um, incarcerated population and kind of maybe uh, some of the causes that of uh, why we have these disparities. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Paul Segura Show. We'll be here until 4 o'clock this afternoon, and then you will have uh, the Attleboro High School versus Bishop Fien playoff game broadcasted over uh, the air, as well as WARARadio.com. Uh, they were in the playoffs, and that will start at 4 o'clock, that broadcast. Uh, right now, we are joined by uh, Senior Research Analyst Nazgul Grenush from the Sentencing Project, discussing the Sentencing Project and mass incarceration Um one thing I did want to uh, ensure that we kind of discuss in this interview is kind of these racial disparities we see among our incarcerated uh, population. And some of the statistics uh, I'd like to uh, mention to everyone, uh, and of course these are all on the Sentencing Project um, website. And one that I found is uh, black males born in 2001 had a 32% chance of serving time in prison at some point in their lives. Hispanic males had a 17% chance, and white males had a 6% chance. Nazwell, could, could you talk a little bit about why is it um, that, the, you know, we look at these demogra- we look at the demographic here, you know, you see, uh, the, the, you know, the 17% chance for Hispanic males and the 32% for black males and 6% for white. Is it essentially, when I, when, when I wanted to talk about the disparities, I'm curious is, are the, those specific races uh, truly committing crimes at a higher rate, or is it just they're being sentenced disproportionately? Mm-hmm. Well, the answer is that it's a little bit of both of those factors, and I think a lot of people like to move towards one or the other explanation. But I think we have to look at how both of those explanations help us to get to these levels of disparity where, um, you know, that statistic that you mentioned about black men what that means is that, um, and so just a little bit more detail, this is an analysis that was done by the Bureau of Justice Statistics, and they found that, um, so among, this would be among um, young black men born in 2001, so 18-year-olds so, um, now, uh, one in three young black men is likely to be imprisoned at some point in their lives if we continue at the rate that we've been going at with incarceration. And the rates are actually even higher if you account for levels of education. So for um, young black men who don't finish high school, that's about a two-thirds, two-thirds of them are likely to be imprisoned at some point in their lives. And similarly for white men, if they don't finish high school, the likelihood of incarceration goes up significantly. So I think that's a really astronomical figure, you know, in terms of how many people can expect to go to prison. And And I'm talking about not even jail. Um, where people might go for a day, two days, six months. I'm talking about prison sentences of at least a year or longer. And so part of the problem has to do with differences in crime rates. And because the United States 
is laid out in the way it is with um, African-Americans and Latinos disproportionately living in urban areas and experiencing concentrated urban poverty, they have a higher rate of offending when it comes to serious violent crimes, in particular African-Americans. If you completely flip flip the script in our society and you had um, downtown urban areas uh, cohabitated primarily by white people um, living in those areas disproportionately poor, you would have very different crime rates. But since things are as they are in the United States, with white people disproportionately being wealthy, educated, living in suburbs and rural areas, that means that they have a lower rate of violent crime, both victimization and offending. But when you look at lower-level crimes, nonviolent crimes, there you see that there's actually not as much difference in criminal offending. So, for example, um, you can look at the what would probably most people would consider the most the least serious offense, which would be possession of marijuana, which is now legalized or decriminalized in about eleven states. But in many, you know, most of the country still, you can get arrested for marijuana possession. And the surveys clearly show that whites and blacks use marijuana at almost identical rates. And yet, the UCL, I'm sorry, ACLU has done an analysis that shows that African Americans are arrested at almost four times the rate of whites for marijuana possession. Okay, so that should be, that's a kind of crime where, uh, you know, since the behavior is almost similar, the outcome in terms of criminal justice processing should be similar as well, but it's not. So there you can see very clearly that the criminal justice system is responding to behavior very differently based on the person's race. So, you know, you can see that disparity when you when you look at arrests for drug offenses and for other offenses as well. And then it goes up the ladder. So arrest, prosecution decision, uh, whether or not you're held pre-trial for, um, before you're, pro- you're adjudicated, uh, wh- whether or not you're given a prison sentence or a probation sentence, whether how long that sentence is, all of those things are at each stage slightly worse for people of color than for whites across the board for any crime. And so as you go through the process, it has a snowballing effect in contributing to significant racial disparities. And so it has to do partly with the discretion of people that work in the criminal justice system, so who police officers decide to stop and who they search, um, who prosecutors decide to um, press charges against and who they'll let the charges go for, um, um, who judges decide to impose a prison sentence on and so on. But it also has to do with policies that are not at the level of, you know, that affect people across the board. So, for example, um, drug-free school zones uh, are sentencing enhancements that make it so that you get a higher penalty if you sell drugs near a school than if you don't. It makes intuitive sense, but what it means is that in many urban areas, it's hard to find yourself outside of a school zone because of the density of urban areas. So people who live in urban areas will get higher sentences for selling drugs compared to those living in suburbs and rural areas. And we know about who tends to live in cities and who tends to live in suburbs and rural areas. So a law like that ends up having um, resulting in harsher penalties for African-Americans and Latinos than for whites. And then the final factor I think that's important to consider is class. Because people of color are disproportionately low income in our society, that means that they can't as frequently access the very experienced, high-quality lawyer that can help them navigate the system. They're more likely to depend on, um, you know, a public defender. 
um, and public defenders are often around the country under under resourced and overworked and can't dedicate as much time to cases. Um, they can't post bail, and so people often get worse. Um, will take worse uh, plea offers when they're held pretrial. So all of those factors contribute to the racial disparities that we see. Absolutely, there was a few things I, I do want to um, touch upon too. In you know. The, the drug-free school zones, I've always been an, a strong advocate for, I'm all for research-based policy. So if it's proven to help, obviously I believe it should be implemented. Um, and this may be unpopular opinion, uh, but I'd like to uh, still discuss it. And that is, uh, when we talk about these drug-free school zones, as you mentioned, although they sound, you know, yes, we shouldn't have this zone for, you know, drugs involved or, or whatnot. But in, in, the way I look at things is maybe, maybe our policies should essentially uh, be uh, proven to help. So I, I'm willing to bet. I haven't I haven't looked up the research, but maybe we could talk, touch upon it. These drug free uh, drug free school zones. I would I'd be willing to bet that they were probably uh, they. I'm sure they don't deter uh, drugs being sold in those areas. Is that fair to say, or am I wrong? Right. There's not evidence. I have not seen evidence that they deter. Generally, you know, punishing people with longer sentences is, you know, threatening people with longer sentences is not an effective deterrent because most people really quite accurately think that they're not going to get caught. You know, the people that come through our criminal justice system are just a small share of the people that actually commit crime. And so if you think you're going to get away with it, and realistically you are going to get away with it, you're not going to, you know, you're not going to be deterred by a longer sentence. Absolutely. And, the, and another part I wanted to mention, too, and you've mentioned it um, as well, and that is the socioeconomic status. I mean, it, it, the thing is, like, th this is such a complex issue, meaning there's so many moving parts and so many things that wouldn't have to be addressed. I know you talked about uh, kind of discretion among police officers or, or among those issuing the sentences. Uh, but I, I'll, another part of it is just uh, it's money. I mean, money buys a good defense, essentially, as I don't know if that's cynical or realistic to say, but I think that also has a, a huge part play in uh, in looking at uh, kind of those that are being incarcerated versus those that uh, maybe have a uh, you know a, a, a verdict of not guilty. That's right. I think money plays a big role, um, especially you know it's not always the case that having a private um, you know, you, uh, not having a public defender is going to get you a better outcome than having a public defender. But chances are, if you, especially if you get someone who's well, very well experienced, um, they can help you navigate the system better. And we see a lot of very high-profile uh, cases like uh, Brock Turner, like the person in Texas, that young man in Texas who made the case that he suffered from affluenza, um, like Amber Greiger, and a police officer in Texas as well. So, you know, we see these cases where people who seem to be privileged in some way um, are able to get what seem to be really, really lenient outcomes for the crimes that they committed. And, you know, I think one of the challenges that I would encourage people to consider is when you see these cases, you know, is the solution that we should advocate for to make sure that these individuals get much harsher penalties that everyone else is getting? Or is the direction that we should instead go in to say, well, actually, you know, six months, one year, three years of probation, all these sentences, 10 years, you know, maybe these actually are closer to the level that we should be sentencing everybody at. And so then what do we need to do to bring everybody else to this level 
instead of trying to push for everyone to get dragged down. Um, you know, and I think something else that has gotten in the way in the past of being able for the criminal justice system to prob- properly fund itself and fund public defenders um, and not rely on fines and fees to operate and fines and fees that are disproportionately imposed on very poor people is that we need to all recognize as Americans that um, people that go to jail and go to prison, almost all of them come back eventually into our community. And ideally, if we're sending them away, we want them to come back in a better position than when they left, right? And in some ways, just the process of aging helps people move away from criminal activity. But there's been this sort of, um, especially in the 1980s and 90s, there's been this attitude of, well, why should they get access to uh, grants to go to college when I don't have access to that? And why should they get access to, um, you know, professional training when I don't get access to that? And what we need to do is to make sure that if people are incarcerated for something that they did wrong and they're coming back to our communities, that we help them to rehabilitate and we invest in that. And that we need to make sure that we all get access to those things that, you know, that are good things that will help us as a society. So not just trying to take away and make sure that nobody can access these good things, but actually try to move in the direction where we can all get that and, and making, you know, making it so that we don't feel envious of people that are incarcerated for getting these kinds of basic services. I think that's a great point because um, what I usually talk about, because when, when I talk to some of my friends or individuals in the community that kind of mention what you just said, you know, why do they have access to these grants for schools or, or uh, these workshops? And I always say it's almost as if, obviously, it's nice having those um, programs for them after they've been released and whatnot. But I always I always kind of think of it, too, as proactive versus reactive. And it's almost where we're being reactive in that situation, trying to get them back to where they should be. But there almost should be like a proactive solution where if those resources were available to them prior to um, their incarceration or obviously the education as they were growing up and whatnot, maybe that could have, um, you know, impacted whether or not they were incarcerated or whether or not they got involved in crime later on in their life as well. Yep, definitely. That's exactly right. And I think there's, um, you know, increasingly, you know, you, you hear from some police chiefs that kind of thinking and some progressive prosecutors that kind of thinking that we need to, instead of just re- spending so much money responding to problems, uh, we need to invest in preventing these problems from co- surfacing in the first place. Absolutely. Folks, we are joined by Nazgul Grandushnu, who is the uh, Senior Research Analyst at the Sentencing Project. We're going to take uh, a break, quick break, and we'll come back and we'll start to talk about more of the initiatives the Sentencing Project is working on, maybe current projects they're working on to combat some of these issues. And then we will start to wrap everything up. Um, again, until 4 o'clock, you'll have Attleboro High School versus Bishop Fian High School in the playoffs that will, that will be broadcasted on uh, the air as well as WARadio.com. So stick around. We'll be right back after these messages.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Paul Sargero Show. We'll be here until 4 o'clock this afternoon, and then you will have Attleboro High School versus Bishop Fian High School on the air, as well as WARadio.com. Uh, today we are joined by uh, Senior Research Analyst at the Sentencing Project, Nazgul Ganush. Uh, we are discussing mass incarceration, the sentencing project, and, um, and kind of criminal justice uh, issues and criminal justice reform as a whole. Um, Nazgul, before we kind of get into the initiatives of the sentencing project and maybe some projects you guys are working on, because, um, I mean, <laughs> I know we could do an entire series of some of these issues, but is there maybe a specific uh, issue or statistic you wanted to make the community aware of that's something you're passionate about that maybe we haven't discussed and you, you were hoping to uh, at least talk about it briefly? Gosh, okay, it's hard to pick just one, but I guess that let me just do maybe two, two quick ones. One thing I, I realized I should have mentioned is that, um, you know, I mentioned that a number of states are really uh, in a leadership position and moving away from incarceration and downsizing the prison population, and Massachusetts is actually among those leaders. So Massachusetts has made about a 20% reduction in its prison population, which is not to say that the job is done and which is not to say that there are not still racial disparities to address, and in particular um, in rural areas and suburban areas, because a lot of the progress generally that we see comes from urban places, and so we need to see that happening outside of those um, zones as well. Um, So that's sort of just one thing I wanted listeners to know. The the other statistic that I would really like people to know about um, and consider is that um, just how many people in the country are serving life sentences. Um, so right now, it's about, among people that are in prison, one in seven people in prison have a life sentence. And so that's a sentence of life with or without the possibility of parole, um, or it's, or some, a sentence that's 50 years or longer, where people would be expected to you know live their whole lives in prison. And so I think that that's an issue that we've begun to really focus on and encourage people to think about, because... Um, it's such a large proportion of the prison population that's there endlessly, and um, and some people call it a death in prison sentence. And, and a life sentence is something that I think a lot of people think of as an alternative to the death penalty, and it has helped to move, to reduce the number of executions around the country. But it has done, but we've imposed life sentences on so many people that would have never been, you know, qualified for the death sentence. So that's how right now there are over 200,000 people around the country serving life sentences. And there are increasingly initiatives around the country now where we see, including in Massachusetts, of bills to try to tackle this that are called second look bills, to give a second look to someone's sentence after they served 15, 20 years to see whether it makes sense for them to still be in prison. Because especially as people get older, the average of approximately nationally, it's like $33,000 a year to keep someone in prison. That number starts to double or triple when people become elderly. And so that's especially an issue with life sentences. And it's really calls for us to think about should we be spending this much money imprisoning someone, holding someone in prison when they're frail and old um, and they could be better cared for outside of prison and in a much more cost-effective way? And a lot of these people have committed very serious crimes. A lot of them have committed homicide, but that happened when they were 18, 19. Now they're 50, 60. Should they still be in prison? And I think that's really the challenge for a lot of people to begin to think about, you know, in general, to realize that we can't end the problem of mass incarceration just by ending the drug war. 
just by reducing sentences for nonviolent crimes. We have to begin to shorten sentences for violent crimes as well. Absolutely. You know, it's astonishing every time some of these numbers come out and this, uh, these statistics. Um, so I'd like to, we discussed a lot of uh, kind of the issues around mass incarceration, uh, but now I'd like to talk a little bit about kind of the sentencing project and maybe some of the initiatives uh, or projects you guys are working on to really combat these, because I feel like everyone always mentions uh, you know, in interviews I've seen, or at least topics I've talked about, where it's like, oh, right, you've mentioned all the issues. How do we fix this? How do we do this? So, could you tell us a little bit about maybe some of the initiatives or projects that the Sentencing Project is working on uh, to combat some of these issues that we've discussed today? Sure. So, we are involved in a lot of different efforts. So, I'll try to mention a couple of them. You know, one thing is for people that we like to encourage people to recognize that a lot of progress has been made, especially in the world of juvenile justice. Um, so the number of kids under age 18 that are incarcerated in the United States has fallen by about 50% since the year 2000. So what we're hoping to achieve in the adult system has already been achieved in the juvenile justice system. And so, um, so the way that we're trying to push for big reductions in the number of people in prison is to advocate for diverting people uh, who have nonviolent convictions away from prison, um, reducing, you know, putting people who have um, drug problems into helping them get access to treatment instead of sending them to jail and, uh, and incarceration. Um, and that means one of the ways that can happen is that in, when someone's on probation or parole to recognize that we don't need to actually um, supervise people for such lengthy periods of time so that they get tripped up just on small, um, you know, just for using marijuana or something like that, something behavior that other people are generally not getting incarcerated for. Um, so we advocate for shortening sentences, moving away from mandatory minimum sentences. We advocate for moving away from um, truth and sentencing laws, which made it, it sounds really great, well, everyone's for truth, but what truth and sentencing laws do is that um, they make it so that when you have a prison sentence, you have to serve more of that sentence before you could be possibly released, whereas what corrections um, uh, professionals generally understand is that when you get a prison sentence, you serve, you know, you used to be able to serve something like a third or a half of that sentence, and the rest of that portion you're not serving if you behave well in prison. It's sort of something just to help manage the, you know, p the prison population, but increasingly with truth and sentencing laws, people have to serve 75, 80% before they can be released. And so by scaling that back, it helps to reduce prison terms. Something else that we work on is um, collateral consequences. So right now, about 6 million Americans can't vote because of a felony conviction around the country. And so um, we encourage um, policymakers to reinstate voting rights for people after they've served their prison terms or even begin to move towards just letting everybody vote regardless, even if they're incarcerated. So in states of like Vermont and Maine, that already happens. In many other countries that we consider our peer countries, being incarcerated does not have to mean that you cannot vote. Um, and so that's one issue. Another kind of collateral consequence is being able to access food stamps and cash assistance. Right now, in a number of states, they have um, they bar people from accessing uh, those kinds of public benefits if they have a felony drug conviction. The whole purpose of you know having a conviction and being returned to your community, we want to set people up to succeed and making it hard for them to get services like that while they're trying to get employed, while they're trying to get back on their feet. 
pushes people back towards illicit, illegal markets. And so helping people to legally get back on their feet, get employment, is all, you know, in the interest of public safety. And then just finally, on the topic of racial disparities, um, one of the kinds of reforms that we've advocated for that has been implemented in a number of states now is racial impact statements. Um, And so racial impact statement is like um, an environmental impact statement that's done when legislators are considering a new bill. They would check to see what is the impact of this going to be on the environment. So in some states like Iowa, Connecticut, New Jersey, now they will consider a, a racial impact statement where to see is this a law that's going to have a disproportionate impact on people of color so that they can, they can go into policymaking without having so many unintended consequences. And just one last thing, we do also have a campaign to move away from life imprisonment and to to encourage policymakers to put impose a 20-year limit on sentences. Um, 20-year limit at the time of sentencing, if the person is still a risk to public safety after 20 years of prison, keep them in prison longer. But uh, but let's not impose life endless sentences, um, life without parole sentences on people. Uh, when we don't know how they're going to be a few decades from now and whether it'll be safe to release them into society. Absolutely. So the Senate Project works on a lot of different issues regarding the criminal justice reform, the criminal justice system. If some of our, lis- if some of our listeners are interested in getting involved or, or helping out or, uh, or anything like that, how can they get in touch with the Sentencing Project or how can they be involved in any way? Hello? Sorry about that. Um, I, so you can go on our website, sentencingproject.org, and you can sign up for some of the newsletters that we have um, we, where we will update you about issues like racial disparities, race and criminal justice, and um, also on felony disenfranchisement. And you can just you know, get general updates from us on what's happening at the federal level and, um, and about the reports that are, we're producing and big reforms that are happening um, at the state level as well. Um, and then if you'd like to learn more about uh, life imprisonment, you can visit the, the website that we have dedicated to that issue, which is endlifeimprisonment.org, and you can learn more about that there. Wonderful. And uh, our last question before we uh, cut to um, the Attleboro High School game. Uh, we always like to wrap up with asking our guests if you could talk to anyone from history and ask them one question. Who would you want to talk to and what would you want to ask them? Okay, this, I'm glad that you gave me a heads up that you were going to ask this question because this is such a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> so I was thinking about, you know, is there a baseball player that I'd like to meet? Is there a president? But, okay, so after a while of thinking, I decided that the person that I would like to have a chance, a chance to chat with um, would be Ida B. Wells. She was an advocate that, um, a journalist that covered issues uh, around lynching and helped to educate people um, about, you know, that kind of uh, violent kind of crime, racial crime that was happening against both men and women. And I guess, you know, what I would ask her is how she coped with the violent details that she was documenting 
um, and how she handled the kind of criticism that she was experiencing for the work that she was doing um, across the board, not just from whites, but also from African-American communities and, um, you know, how she was able to sort of maintain joy in life despite seeing um, such tragedies and getting really digging deeply into such tragedies in our country's history. Wonderful. Yeah, I, everyone, I'm always happy that uh, um, I always like to throw that question out there previously in the uh, kind of prior to the interview because I always get that. Like, oh, I'm so glad you, you asked me this because I couldn't <laughs> think of anything on the spot. So I always like to mention that uh, first. Nazgul, I would like to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll have to do another segment because this isn't th- these are issues that literally one hour isn't enough to kind of cover everything. So I'd like to thank you so much again for coming on and kind of uh, educating our community a little bit about uh mass incarceration, criminal justice issues, and the sentencing project. And thank you for uh, all you do. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. All righty. Uh, thank you. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, again, at 4 o'clock, we will be uh, broadcasting the um, Attleboro High uh, football game and uh, against, uh, against uh, Bishop Fian. And so, uh, again, that was Nazgul Ganush from uh, the Sentencing Project. Again, hope everyone has a wonderful weekend, and thank you so much. And we'll be back at it again next week. We'll be talking to Victor Santos, who is a Portuguese singer, a Portuguese community advocate, and also the director of human resources at the uh, city of East Providence. So thank you, and have a wonderful weekend.